Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please rise for the call to worship. From Psalm 103, verses 19 through 22. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens. Wow, that's the sermon right there. I, <laughs> I, so I did, that hit me so hard, I'm sorry. I, I'll, I'll, I'll try to read that without interrupting it again. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His In all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. Let us do so by standing and singing together hymn number two. Thank you again for the hour of worship which is before us. We praise you indeed uh, as the psalmist declares that you've established your throne in the heavens and your sovereignty rules over all. Great God in heaven, we look to you as uh, the king of heaven and earth. Uh, We acknowledge your majesty and your might, your love and your grace, your power to save, your power to rule, your power to subdue all of your enemies. We recognize that uh, we are to kiss the son lest he be re- he angry angry with us. 
Uh, he is the best friend, but the worst enemy. Uh, Jesus Christ is the king of the world, as the king of kings and the Lord of hosts. Uh, there is no there is no one who loves like him, but uh, there is also no one who hates like him with such furious wrath against uh, sinful men. Uh, Lord Jesus, we, we are amazed uh, not at your 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 enmity and your your determination to destroy your enemies. Uh, we are amazed that you take uh, from the midst of your enemies a portion and a remnant to save, because the result, the, the reality, O oh God, is that. All of us stood uh, in, uh, we stood in need of judgment as your enemies. Uh, and, and yet, by your own glorious will, you set apart a people to save out of uh, the mass of people that you have determined to destroy. All of those who oppose you. Oh God, as we'll see in the sermon, what is Pharaoh compared to you? What is man compared to you? And yet, to use the language of another song, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Oh God, uh, we are we are together lower than angels. We are not. Uh, we cannot even reach as high as they in created glory. And yet you have bestowed your greatest love and your greatest grace upon mankind. Uh, you you have not only reflected your glory in us, uh, but you have chosen us, as Matthew Henry speaks, to become the monuments of grace, which uh, declare the glory of your grace forevermore in heaven. And so we'll stand as a monument. Not only uh, together with the lamb who was slain, but as those for whom he was slain. And so uh, we will stand together with him in glory as objects uh, and recipients of grace. Father in heaven, uh, considering our salvation like this as an eternal uh, bestowal of grace. We, we are amazed, uh, again, considering the course of the world and of the nations is to oppose you. And that you would save just a few. Uh, Father, as we gather together this evening, as just a small and a humble gathering, we're as mindful of that as ever. That as the world goes about its own, uh, its own ways and occupies its own course, we are taking a break from the world. And just a handful of us are coming into this church building and we are declaring to the world and to ourselves and to God that God alone is our king and we will bow to no other. Which is not just a gesture, it's something that we hope at least is meaningful. It is the way of saying that we are Christians and we're disciples of Jesus and we're determined to follow him. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to help us in this endeavor, to reorient our lives around the task of discipleship, so that in all that we do, we would be the worshipers of God. And like Israel, we would be afraid not to worship him, but there would be no fear of the world found in our hearts. Again, O oh Lord, having said that, we recognize that our hearts uh, are so often full of anxiety and fear. And we ask you to, to stay our hearts and to quiet our fears and to give us true courage and true faith in the midst of, uh, well, to speak of an uncertain future is, is, is redundant because man never knows what's going to happen tomorrow. But, Lord, we ask you to give us courage to face whatever it is that lies ahead and that full of faith as, as greater trials and greater pressures are brought upon your church, as no doubt they will, that what we would discover in ourselves is not the absence, but the presence of faith as you are working that hidden principle in us day by day. And might it shine forth very brightly like a bright uh, shining diamond, which has been refined and purified and, and glorious in the sight of all when indeed uh, the time of testing should come. Uh, not to say we know, oh God, but just to say 
Prepare us for whatever it is that lies ahead and give us give us steadfastness in the face of every trial. And so it is we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. That was our scripture reading. I want to read. It isn't always easy to think of a parallel passage. And sometimes uh, the best thing we can do is to just look at an earlier passage and see how similar it is to the present passage. That's what I want to do this evening. There's a kind of. Um, Refrain almost. We're returning to a similar idea in a similar setting. The book of Exodus opens with the Israelites suffering in bondage in Egypt. And chapter 5 uh, is a return to that scene. And, uh, and so let's just read those two passages in parallel. You remember what happens in between. Moses is in Midian and the Lord deals with him there. But he returns to Egypt and in chapter 5. And it's very similar to what we have in chapter 1. Beginning in verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor, and they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and uh, Ramses, I think I said that right. I'm not sure. But the more they afflicted them, uh, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in, in, in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field. All their labor, labors, which they rigorously imposed on them. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named uh, Shipra and the other was named Puah. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them in, upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. But let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives and the people multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born, you are to be cast into the Nile. And every daughter you are to keep alive. Now uh, let us stand together and sing the doxology. indicated last time we're nearly done with the canons of Dord and following that we will uh, we will just uh, recite the Apostles and Nicene Creed alternating in the evenings. Uh, so fifth main point of doctrine, the perseverance of the saints uh, uh, following. If you look in the bulletin, Article 12, colon, the assurance uh, as an incentive to godliness and then begin reading with me with the words this assurance, this assurance of perseverance, however, 
so far from making true believers proud and carnally self-assured, is rather the true root of humility, of childlike respect, of genuine godliness, of endurance in every conflict, of fervent prayers, of steadfastness in cross-bearing and in confessing the truth, and of well-founded joy in God. Reflecting on this benefit provides an incentive to a serious and continual practice of thanksgiving and good works, as is evident from the testimonies of Scripture and the examples of the saints. Let me say a couple words about this. I think it is fair to say that in many circles, the doctrine of once saved, always saved does lead to an antinomian spirit. Uh, That's the kind of thing you find broadly in evangelicalism today, that being taught you're saved, you can never lose your salvation. And it's taught in a way that uh, leaves the believer feeling that the way he lives really isn't all that consequential. Uh, That is not the kind of assurance that we find in scripture or in reformed theology The kind of assurance that we find in the canons of Jordan that we've been reflecting upon, the infallible assurance of faith, or as the book of of Hebrews says uh, in in chapter 6, verse 11, a full assurance of hope, firm until the end, it is contrasting assurance, as we've seen, to apostasy. It's the opposite end of the spectrum. It isn't the careless life that's on the verge of apostasy. It isn't where assurance brings you. It's the vigorous life lived for God, dealing with the certainties of the gospel. It is a life of communion and nearness uh, with God through Jesus Christ. And that is a life that will not lead to loose living, but it is a life that will lead to diligence and seriousness and true holiness. And so assurance, rightly understood, is an incentive to godliness, and not the opposite. Although uh, the Roman Catholics will always slander uh, the, uh, the Reformed and the Protestants for holding to the doctrine of assurance. And they will always say that it is uh, the grounds of loose and careless living. And sadly, so many Protestants today uh, bear out uh, the truth of that in their eyes. Well, let us not let it not be said of us. As a hymn of preparation, let us stand together and sing number 509.
please be seated. And now would you turn with me or just listen on to Exodus chapter 5. I'll say it in the sermon, but I'll say it now as well. Uh, we, we end uh, chapter 4 with such a happy note, such a high note, and there's such a sudden a turn of events. I know it's been uh, three weeks since we've been in Exodus. I was out for a week, and then we uh, we looked at Second Corinthians three as part of our Exodus series. Uh, but now we finally return to the book. But we need to remember what it was that preceded the people believed. Verse thirty one, and when they heard the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel that He had seen their affliction, then they bowed and worshipped. But look at this sudden, uh, the sudden turn of events, or as I entitled the sermon, a sudden test of faith. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God otherwise. He will fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? Get back to your labors. Again, Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many and you would have uh, them cease from their labors. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen saying, you're no longer to give the people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they were making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they are lazy. Therefore, they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work as it uh, at it so that they will pay no attention to false words. So the taskmasters of the people and their foremen went out and spoke to the people, saying, thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it, but none of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters pressed them, saying, complete your work quota, your daily amount, just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not completed your required amount either yesterday or today in making brick as previously? Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh, saying, Why do you deal this way with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants, yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are being beaten, but uh, it is the fault of your own people. But he said, You are lazy, very lazy, therefore... You say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work, for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. The four men of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. They said to them, may the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. As I say, what a contrast to chapter 4. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your word. Even the difficult passages, if anything, at times we find we're more thankful for those 
uh, because they give us a clear picture of the church as she often finds herself in a period and in a time of distress uh, and, and the minister of, of all people saying, Lord, why did you ever send me to do this? Uh, so the discouragement is pervasive at such times when the faith of your people are faltering. Help us, O oh Lord, uh, to learn many important lessons from this passage. Would you shed greater light on your word? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we're working through uh, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, who knows where we'll go after that, but that will take us out quite a ways. Uh, And really, you do have to take them together. They belong together. We've already seen, and we're only at the beginning of the second book now, uh, how many strange and sudden turns providence uh, has to take. The providence of God is often very surprising, but it also has a way in its uh, sudden twists of revealing what is really in man. And that's what you have in this chapter. God is revealing what is in the church by testing her. So the first thing I want to say is this about chapter four, verse 31. We have a picture of a happy church. Uh, a church, I, I've already read it, but I'll read it again. Moses had performed the signs in the sight of the people. Verse 30 said so the people believed and they bowed low and they worshipped. It's a happy picture of a happy church. Everything here is as it should be. Uh, something uh, uh, here uh, is something of what we read in Acts is also found here. Similar picture of uh, the church strong in her worship. Under the mighty hand of God. And if you had never read Exodus before, you might have had bright hopes for this generation. Uh, But as I say, things will suddenly take a turn and reveal what was really in Israel. But here in in chapter four, at the end, we have a, a different picture. It's surprising that things, in fact, are going as well as they are, given what we read earlier about this generation and their rejection of Moses. Very early in the book of Exodus, we read of their unbelief, but hear their belief. If only because God had promised to Moses that in the performing of the signs that they will believe. You remember one of Moses' objections is, Lord, what if they won't believe? And Lord said, uh, I, I will give you these three signs and they will believe. And so perhaps this was just an encouragement to Moses. And I think that it was, even if it was nothing else. And so we performed the signs and so they believed and praised God for them. We have, again, the picture of a worshiping church. But as it is so often, uh, so we read uh, here in chapter 5, immediately following this, a fresh trial, a period of testing which the Lord brings the church through. Uh, And something that I plan to say uh, later on in the sermon is that Israel here is uh, a picture of the visible church. Not the invisible church. Do not hear me say that this generation was believing. I will say the opposite. But they were the church, the visible church. The trial that we read of here uh, is in some what we have uh, in chapter one. The same situation confronted her there, except it was much worse. The trial, I won't uh, recount all of the details, but the trial is only enhanced for Israel. Uh, her burden and her labor and her slavery, uh, rather than experiencing a deliverance from these things, was only increased at the promise of her deliverance. And so here is a paradox which the church often faces, as Matthew Henry says, that as God draws near in mercy, he often appears harsh and brings fresh trials. 
This is something that had been true of Moses on a personal level just prior to this. You remember the Lord drawing near to Moses at Sinai, revealing himself to Moses and calling and encouraging Moses to the ministry. But what happens immediately after that? Moses goes out to do the work of the Lord and the Lord immediately meets him as an adversary and seeks to kill him. Well, as the Lord draws near in mercy, he often appears harsh, doesn't he? Moses had learned that and now it was Israel's turn to learn, learn the lesson that just before God delivers from bondage, he often increases bondage. And this is a paradox of Christian experience we must all pass through and learn for ourselves. Times of deliverance are often times of trial or seasons of trial where God tests our faith to show what is really in us. To see, for instance, as with Israel here as the visible church, whether our worship and our love for him is toward his gifts or his person. That's the really important distinction here. What was it that they were really seeking from God? Were they seeking his deliverance or himself? This is what God reveals immediately by making it seem that they wouldn't be delivered after all. Let us be frank. In the face of this test, Israel fails miserably. They rejoiced at the prospect of gifts and of deliverance. Chapter 4, verse 31. It was demonstrated for them so powerfully at the end of chapter 4. How could they deny it? Again, the Lord assured Moses they wouldn't be able to deny it. They will believe. They will praise me of the presence of these signs. How could they doubt in the presence of such things that God would deliver them? How could they fail to worship him at the presence of such things? It was all but inevitable that they would worship him there. But just keep reading. In fact, just go one verse later and one chapter later. And what do you find? You find a fresh trial and their whole attitude is changed. The faith and the worship that you find in chapter four, verse 31 has entirely disappeared. And now, instead of praising God for Moses, they ask God to judge Moses in verse 21. The true character and the attitude of that generation was quickly and easily revealed. That they would believe only so long as it was easy to believe. But by a single trial, a single new hardship introduced into their present situation, as I say, rather than looking to God through Moses uh, for a blessing, they looked to God to judge Moses, their deliverer. It's interesting to notice, isn't it, beloved? How little desire there is to worship God in the visible church in seasons of trial. I wonder perhaps if not today, if that's the thing that the Lord is revealing. How little we really desire to worship him. I'm speaking generally about the church. Don't misunderstand me. But that's what we find again and again throughout the course of history. In seasons of blessing, we're all too ready to bless the Lord and to praise him. But what about when he appears to be harsh? Are we just as determined? We see in the case of the Israel, uh, in the case of Israel, they were not. This generation, as Psalm 95 says, as Hebrews chapters three and four say, don't be fooled by the picture in chapter four, verse 31. They believed the signs, but they didn't believe God. They were marked not by belief, but by unbelief. This wilderness generation, again, as Psalm 95, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, which are our next position of Psalm 95, 
was marked by apostasy and unbelief, which is why God, in delivering them, left them to die in the wilderness, all of them. They were an apostate and unbelieving generation. I uh, I can prove that to you by the quotation of one passage from Hebrews chapter 3. And we begin to get a glimpse of this here. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 16 through 19 For who provoked him when they heard, indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, uh, who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that he would not enter his rest, that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Again, that's what the Lord is revealing here. He is showing them to be a wicked and an unbelieving generation. And the justice of his actions and leaving them to die in the wilderness is plainly seen. The lesson of this generation, as we'll later see, uh, going back to what is said in Hebrews chapter 3 as a quotation from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his hearts, do not harden. Uh, sorry, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in unbelief as that wilderness generation did. He sworn his wrath. They will not enter my rest. But that brings me to the next point, and that is uh, another strong indication here, which uh, reveals the situation of the church, and that is the enmity that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. As I say, Israel here is the visible church is just like the church in every age in reality. And what she discovers in her happiness at the presence and the prospect of God's deliverance at the end of chapter chapter four is just how many opponents she has and the nature of that opposition. It's an opposition that she falters under just as Adam and Eve had done before. Every time God is doing a good work, Satan rises up to oppose it. This is a lesson the church has to learn. If she won't learn it, then she will fall just as Israel did. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 10? I don't remember exactly, but something like these things were written for our instruction so that we would not sin as they did. They failed to learn the lesson of the enmity that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. I I suppose they imagined things would just go swimmingly after Moses showed up. They failed to realize just how much hardship would, uh, would follow upon the promise of their deliverance. Let me say a few things about this enmity. Four things. Uh, and, and we find it in, in Pharaoh in every instance. The first is that enmity has as, as its root not so much their hatred of us, that is the seed of the serpent. I'm referring to Genesis 3.15. Not so much the seed of uh, their hatred of us, but of God. Pharaoh's reluctance to listen to Moses and his defiant spirit was not directed towards Moses so much as it was directed to God. His true feelings about God are what uh, is revealed I do not, or who is the Lord, he says, verse 2, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. I don't know who he is, I don't care who he is, and I will not do what he says. That's the heart of man. But you see, it isn't an indifference, it's an enmity. It is a hatred. The one whom the godless hates most is God. Of this God, they will say, I do not know him, nor do I care to submit to him. I will not be ruled by him. Odd that they have so little concern that other gods should be worshipped. While they hate the thought that he should be worshipped. In their protest that he does not exist, they doth protest too much. And they reveal their true feelings. 
They know he exists, but he hates that. He hates the God he pretends does not exist. They reveal in their disbelief. Their deep hatred and animosity at thoughts of him. He cannot be spoken of without them speaking as Pharaoh speaks here. All the while, they live in a pretended fantasy world as though there were no God but themselves. They live as pretended gods. That's how Pharaoh lives here as well. But it isn't just kings and subjects as well. Every man lives as though he is the God of his own universe. But no one ever personified this tendency as much as this man, Pharaoh. God declares uh, that his people be let go through his servant Moses And yet he declares that such a thing would not uh, happen, nor would he allow it to happen as though it were in his power to prevent what God had commanded would happen. Uh, A a lesson he would soon learn that it was not in his power. But as I say, the whole uh, world lives like this under the strong delusion of sin. The prayer of the unbeliever is not thy will, but mine. It is an enmity towards God. But it is also, secondly, an enduring enmity that exists so long as the conflict is playing itself out. This is where I need to read Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What we immediately recognize at the birth of the two sons, Cain and Abel, and uh, the ensuing history that fills up the rest of the Old Testament, and indeed the rest of the Bible and the rest of history, is that that is a conflict that endures. And it just goes on until the end of history. And so the enmity that exists between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent exists so long as the conflict itself is playing out. Go back to the garden and you have you have a sense of what the plan of the serpent was with respect to man. He was seeking to overthrow his happiness, his desire to worship God, uh, his obedience to God. But as the, the serpent appears as a friend, what we discover immediately is that he is the true enemy of the happiness of man. But it is an enmity which we discover, as I say, which doesn't end there, even with his victory. An enmity which not only existed in the garden, but also in the time of Israel. It was an enmity which Israel had to face through the nation of Egypt and the person of Pharaoh. And it continues to this very day. It just goes on and on until the end of history. Christ is ruling until he's placed every enemy under his feet. The conflict goes on. The church is being tried and tested in every generation. The enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let us not rest or grow weary, beloved. Let us go on in the conflict so long as it lasts. What I'm trying to say to you is that there's nothing new about it. Israel should have known this, and we ought to know it as well. We shouldn't be surprised when trials come our way or when the world is disposed towards us in an unfavorable way. When we find that the world is against us, we need to remember the enmity of the two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We need to recognize, again, that every good work that the Lord produces, Satan opposes. Sometimes, let us be honest, it would seem the seed of the serpent is winning, isn't it? That's what makes the heart of the believer faint. 
when the course of history would make it appear that Satan is winning in the conflict. And indeed, at such times, it would appear that the church is at the mercy of the serpent. I wonder uh, how many of you at times uh, have a little bit of anxiety in your heart that that might be what we face. But we need to remember always who is the victor in the conflict. It endures. But the seed of the woman is always the victor. Not only is it enduring, it is total. There is no agreement between these two parties. Theologically, we call this the antithesis. It is a, a principle and a spirit of total opposition, total disagreement. Both parties, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, represent two systems of thought, two worldviews, two systems of values, and two distinct and opposite goals. Which is why, let me just say, as a word of application, it is so Dangerous for the Christian to ever take part in the world and its movements. The world always has its movements, doesn't it? But what it's really revealing in those times is its values and its goals. The Christian should not take part in these things. It is just a working out of the same conflict. It is just another way in which the world is seeking to overthrow the authority and the sovereignty of God. Just as Pharaoh had done. Let us never, beloved, join hands with the world in its enmity against God. I see so much of that today. The world with its painted virtue and the Christian joining in. It's also tragic to me. It represents here a failure that we find in this passage again. A failure to understand the true conflict in which we are engaged. The kind of thing which you find in Galatians chapter 5 or 17, and I've alluded to it already. I, I suppose I was preaching this point in advance. The way in which uh, the flesh and the spirit are engaged in an irreconcilable war. And just as soon as the spirit exerts his influence upon the believer, so the flesh rises up in opposition. Whatever good thing that the Lord is doing, the flesh and the devil and sin will oppose That is always true in the course of history until God at last subdues his enemies under his feet once and for all. And they will never be able to oppose him again. But until that that day comes, they will always be opposing whatever good I seek to do. The flesh rises up in opposition. That's not just true in a personal way. That is true in history. What Moses asked of Pharaoh was no special favor. It was the kind of thing a servant might ask in Egypt at any time. And that Pharaoh would have easily granted. Let us go for a couple days and worship our God. And then we'll return as your subjects and your slaves. Something that was common uh, in that day. Slaves to be granted the right of worship. There was in reality, as I say, nothing special. No reason for Pharaoh to oppose what they requested. But that's the exact point we're meant to see. And if you read the narrative again, uh, you would actually notice that it's, it's, it's told in such a way for that point to stand out. The, the request was so reasonable, and yet Pharaoh was so forceful in his rejection of it. But it's just another example of the way that the heart of the sinner always lives to oppose the things of God. And there isn't a single good thing that you will seek to do or suggest that he will not oppose with all of his heart. Matthew Henry, the enmity of the serpent seed against the seed of the woman is such as breaks through all laws of reason, honor, humanity, and common justice. Pharaoh was acting very foolish, very unreasonable, very unjust, but he couldn't help himself. 
And we should never expect anything different, beloved. Not from the rulers of this age or from the wise men of this age. If anything, it is amazing to think that the church ever fares as well as she does, given the nature of this total conflict in which she is engaged. And even then, it is only by the special care and providence of God. If Satan could have his way, he would always afflict and oppress the church. But let me say one last thing about this enmity before we come to a more hopeful thought. And that is uh, number four concerning this enmity. Notice the thing that Satan hates most from uh, the servants of God. His greatest scorn falls upon this thought that God should be worshipped. That is the thought that enrages Pharaoh. It is the thought that enrages Satan. That God should be worshipped at his command and according to his ordinances. The purer the worship and the purer our desire to worship God, the more Satan will oppose us. Do we not see that here? Is that not the exact issue? Worship is the thing Satan hates most. He always, notice, casts it in a hateful light. As in the garden, so here and so today. Do you see what he says? He says, obviously you don't have enough to do. And so I'm going to give you more work. Your desire to worship God does not arise from something that is pure and holy and commendable. But it is the result of your own idleness. Worship is the work of idle hands. The true laborer in the nation of Egypt doesn't have time to go on a little vacation for three days to worship God in the wilderness. One who is truly industrious would not make such a request. He cast this desire in the worst possible light, once again revealing the enmity which he has for the thought that God should be worshipped. Do you see, beloved, how much reason we have to thank God that we are truly free and not slaves? That we do not have to ask permission to worship God? However, we are beginning to get the sense in this country, are we not, that such things can no longer be taken for granted. The thing Satan hates most, and all who represent him, especially those in positions of power, is just that people should gather together to worship him at his command, and they will always oppose it in every way they can. There is nothing in the whole universe more hateful to Satan than that. Those who do so are always cast in the worst possible light. He will use any excuse, any lie at all to cast our desire to do so in a negative light. I trust you understand the reference. It's plainly here in the text, but it's also the same thing Christians are facing today. And who is to say we won't face it in an ever increasing degree in in days to come? That more and more Christians will be cast in a negative light simply in their desire to gather together and to worship God. And to find more and more that the state and the nation is opposing them in this. Who knows? Only God knows. But we see that the church faced this. And we're even finding in certain states in our own land that the, the church is facing this. Do you remember what they said of the first Christians? That they gathered to break Moses' law. That's what the Jews said about the first Christians. They said it about Stephen. They said it about others. The only reason they preach this gospel is because they hate Moses. They hate us. They were cast in the worst possible light. Afterwards, in the first century, it was said of those Christians that they were, they were coming together in, in order to eat flesh and blood. They were cannibals. It's all so absurd. But again, it's nothing new. 
anything to cast this desire in a negative light. And we must never, beloved, give up or give in, excuse me, to the pressure of the world to give up the worship of God. Never. In fact, let us be afraid not to worship him, whatever the world may say. Verse three. Listen to what they said to Pharaoh. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord. Otherwise, he will fall upon us with pestilence and with sword. Those who truly fear God will worship him. They will be afraid not to. And where there is the fear of God, there will be no fear of man. But that was really Israel's folly, wasn't it? The folly of Israel was that they began to fear man more than they feared God. And what did they give up in the process? What they gave up was worship. Keep reading in Exodus. The great folly of Israel in her unbelief is that she gave up the worship of the true God for the worship of idols. We won't have to go very long to find that. Fear God and not man, beloved, and go on in worshiping him. And don't let anything ever discourage or detract from that desire. Whatever the world is saying. Let me say something more hopeful and more encouraging. And that is the plan of God with respect to the visible church. We've been looking at her situation, but what is his plan? We have an indication here of uh, the way in which he is dealing with the church. Uh, uh, and and this, uh, this last point will uh, come under three headings. The first is with his ministers, his faithful ones. The simple truth is, is as we look to the end of this passage, that Moses of all people needed encouragement here. He had doubted whether the Lord could use him. And now uh, at the first instance of a trial, the people were ready to kill him. They were ready for God to kill him. And Moses was terribly discouraged. He says, oh, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? I was saying this at lunch to someone. uh, The more I study the life of this man, Moses, the more I realize that he, like Jesus Christ, was a man of sorrows. His life was a life uh, like Jeremiah's of weeping and of tears and of hardship. Moses needed to be encouraged. He didn't want to take up the work. And at the first instance of taking it up or the second, I guess I should say. It had encouraging beginnings, but not for very long. And he wished he had never taken it up. He wished like Jonah, he had fled the call of the Lord. But the Lord. Like Jonah would not let Moses go. As I indicated in an earlier sermon, those who are truly God cannot escape the call of God. Moses needed to be encouraged by the Lord, even as the church was being tested. And even as there was a result of that, unbelief was being revealed in the hearts of the people. Moses, if ever he was to be a faithful prophet, needed to know what was in the hearts of the people. It was a discouraging thing to realize, but all the more reason to place his hope and his trust in the Lord alone, not In the fruit of his ministry. He also needed to know as was made clear here at the outset. What was in the heart of Pharaoh. Pharaoh was not about uh, to let Israel go. Again all the more reason for the prophet and the servant of God. To look upon God alone. And so uh, the Lord really was doing uh, Moses a favor. He was showing him a mercy. It became clear to Moses through this trial what he would face. His ministry would not be an easy one and and all the better that he would see so out at the outset. But as we go on reading, we won't get to this today, but as we look into chapter six, uh, we find the answer to the prayer. Actually, chapter six into chapter seven. 
What the Lord says there is just an answer to the prayer. Lord, why did you ever send me? Why did you afflict this people? How does the Lord answer the prayer if I were to summarize it? Simply by saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. And there is no other. And that is the, an- the only answer, beloved, Moses will ever get or ever need. What is man compared to God? What is the unbelief of the church or the unbelief of the nations as they rage against God compared to God? That's what the faithful need to hear in seasons and times of trial. I am the Lord. That's what he says in verse 2 of chapter 6. Then he expounds that thought. The second thing I want to say about the plan of God with respect to the visible church is that we have here, as we've seen, what becomes the, vis- the wilderness community. Israel in the wilderness, not Israel in the land. Those whom the Lord delivered out of Egypt, but then who dwelt and died in the wilderness. Whose situation mirrors that of the New Testament church. Uh, That's what you find in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. And this is where the distinction between the visible and the invisible church becomes not only apparent, but highly relevant. I've been saying that Israel was the visible church and yet she was unbelieving. And yet those two ideas are not a contradiction. The only way you can make sense of that is by appealing to the visible and the invisible church. We've already looked at what was said in Hebrews chapter 3. Where the Lord uh, uh, through, let's see, Hebrews chapter 3. Let me just turn there for a moment. Hebrews chapter 3. Okay, I just needed to remind myself. He quotes Psalm 95, and he warns us against following the same course that they took. Do not harden your hearts as unbelief. Who was it who fell, uh, failed to enter the rest? Was it not the wilderness community? What is the point of that? Why would the writer of the Hebrews bring that up? Again, it's the thought. Your situation is analogous to theirs. You are partakers and participants of the visible church. And as partakers of the visible church, your situation is similar to theirs. You are recipients of the mercy of God. And so we become aware by this comparison that God so deals with his visible church as to make it appear that they are all recipients of his salvation. Again, that's true in Israel. And that is what appears to be true in the book of Hebrews. He so deals, I'll say it again, with the visible church as to make it appear as though they are all recipients of his salvation. But what Exodus reveals and what uh, Hebrews explains to us is that with the presence, the passage of time and the presence of trials. And only with uh, these things does it become apparent who are the true believers and who it is, on the other hand, who has become apostate. Sadly, of this generation, it was the entire generation. Uh, save just a few men, Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. But we can never understand the situation of the church as it's described in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews unless we understand the situation of Israel. Again, I mean the distinction between the outward and the inward, the visible and the invisible. The way it is that God makes it appear that the visible church are all recipients of salvation, but in reality, only a few are. That is true in the old situation, it's just as true in the new situation. Paul makes a great deal of this in Romans chapter 9. Not all are Israel who are outwardly Israel, but God saves a remnant from his visible church. 
God calls the entire nation of Israel, but only very few of them were actually saved in a spiritual sense, visible, invisible. And the same exact situation confronts us today. Let us beware of the danger of thinking too much of the visible church, of our church membership and placing placing our trust uh, in that as our salvation. The church is not our salvation. To be a son of Israel was not their salvation. We might very well, as the writer of the Hebrews goes on in Hebrews chapter 6, to say, we might very well taste the good things of the Lord and turn our backs. Just as Israel did. And so the message is this. Understand the exact situation of the church today as that which corresponds to Israel in those days. And learn the lesson of Israel. Seek to be saved, not in an outward, but an inward sense. A spiritual salvation which lasts. But then I want to look at what the plan of God with respect to the visible church concerning the nations. The fact that the visible church is at odds with with the nations. And as I indicated in the sermon, and as we all know, uh, that is something which we see today and which uh, in many of our hearts we fear. That increasingly there is the presence of this conflict. And we wonder how the church will fare in days to come. This, again, is nothing new. We need to understand the plan of God with respect to the visible church, with respect to the nations. How is it that God deals with those who oppose not only himself, but his people? Those who are outwardly called. The relevance of this is obvious in every generation. The nations in general oppose God. But that's uh, that's not really the question we need to ask. Will the nations oppose God? We already know the answer. The question we need to ask is this. Do they succeed? Do they ever succeed? That is the question that faces faces every generation afresh. If perhaps we should see in our own day and in our own land and even our own state, who knows? Leaders emerge who oppose the church. Will they succeed? What do you think would happen if that happened? Well, chapter five just leaves us with the problem. But thank God, chapter six and the rest of Exodus does not. The thing that perplexed this generation and has perplexed so many generations as the nations rise up in opposition to the people of God. And without going into chapter six and the rest of Exodus, uh, let me just summarize what we will find there. And that is simply, as we saw in the call to worship That God rules the world and God rules the nations and no one, not even Pharaoh himself, ever succeeded in opposing him. The great men of history rise up, the rulers of the age, the wise men of the age rise up in opposition to God, but not a single one of them has ever succeeded. And so look at Pharaoh here. He was a great man of history. One who opposed God and enslaved the people of God. But what was he compared to God? The whole lesson here is this. And listen well to this, beloved. God is able to deal with the pharaohs of this world. And he is able to deal with the pharaohs of every nation and every generation. There isn't a single man who ever opposed God and succeeded. Look at the Exodus. How easily God deals with Pharaoh there. 
how easily he overthrows and kills this man. Pharaoh's proud heart would not submit to God. And Pharaoh suffers for it, not God. And so let us be clear once again whom we ought to fear. Not man, but God. And beyond that, let us see what God is actually doing in history. What his will is with respect to the nations in reference to the church. One that he declared once more all the way back in the garden. That the seed of the woman who is Jesus Christ would get the victory. Oh yes, it will be a bitter struggle, he says, all the way back then. But only because God willed that it should be. And at times it would seem that the serpent is really winning. But all he is doing is bruising the heel of the son of the, the seed of the woman as he is crushing his head. And so there is no reason to fear ever in the course of the history of this world. Do not fear the rulers of this age, beloved. Always look for the victory of the seed of the woman. That is why the church gathers in every generation to express their belief and their hope in that fact. That is what we find in Psalm 110, which we've been considering in Hebrews. Let me read it now. Psalm 110 not only tells us that uh, the, the Messiah will be a priest forever, but also in speaking of his kingdom, this is what he says. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see, a little passage of time, but the thing is certain. Every enemy will become a footstool. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will, vol will volunteer freely in the day of your power and holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. On and on he goes along these lines. That is the testimony of Psalm 110 concerning Jesus. That is the testimony of all of scripture. And all of history is meant to reveal this. And soon it will be open for all to see in plain view the rule and the reign of Jesus. Let us continue to place our hope in this, uh, beloved. The hidden rule of Jesus which will very soon be made plain. Amen. And let us stand together and praise to God by singing together hymn number six. Oh, yeah, this is a cappella. I forgot. So that's right. Okay, so he's going to start us, and then we're going to sing together. So that's, that's what we're doing here. He, he's just going to get the first tune, and then we're going to go. All ye that fear Jehovah's name, his glory
benediction response but receive now the benediction may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all Oh. Uh-huh.